Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, we're doing things a little differently. Natasha just released a new report entitled Rescuing Aid in Syria. And in this episode, I'll talk with Natasha about the report and why it matters. For this special episode, we've recorded a video of the interview shot in the CSIS studio. You can find the video and Natasha's report linked in the show notes or on the CSIS website. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Natasha Hall is a senior fellow in the Middle East program at CSIS. She's the author of a new report from the CSIS Middle East program, Rescuing Aid in Syria. We're delighted to have her join us today. Natasha, welcome to Babel. Thank you. Thanks for having me, John. Congratulations on this new report. You wrote about the problems of more than a decade of providing humanitarian aid to Syria. Why did you think this was an important issue? Well, today, what we see is this beautiful country that's been pulverized. Families have been shattered. There are families displaced from Germany, all the way I've met Syrians in Langkawi Island in Malaysia. Families have been ripped apart. Even the society down to the level of cement has been shattered in Syria. I've interviewed mothers with children that have lung infections because they breathe in the particulate matter from things that are kicked up from constant bombardment. So this is a country that's really bleeding and we don't see any end in sight. There's no sort of politically acceptable solution to this conflict, this awful conflict on the horizon. And so really the entire international community has decided that aid and diplomacy are going to be the way that they resolve this crisis. And what I've essentially seen over the past 10 years from the practitioner side in the humanitarian world, but also on the analyst side, is that aid has tended to be a kind of pat on the back for donor governments to feel like they're doing something in Syria. And as a result of that dependence on aid, the Syrian government has manipulated the aid system to its benefit and to its allies' benefit and has deprived those in desperate need. And so I felt that, you know, 10 years in, as we're looking towards early recovery, as it's clear that the Assad government might stay in power, what can we do to rescue aid and actually help Syrians in need? And you worked, before you came to CSS, you worked in, in the humanitarian field for more than a decade. A lot of that time spent in the Middle East, a lot of that time spent on Syria. You knew a lot coming into writing this report. As you researched the report, you spoke to more than 130 people. What surprised you you didn't expect to learn that you did? I think I didn't expect to see such understanding of the problems across the board. I spoke to UN officials. I spoke to international NGOs, local NGOs, donor government representatives, and they all see these problems. They're all very concerned about these problems. But I think in a lot of cases, because they've been siloed in their you know, individual corners, whether it's a specific UN agency or an NGO, 
they feel almost powerless to stop this manipulation. Is the Syria situation different from humanitarian situations elsewhere? Is there something where Syria is a, a sort of an especially difficult case for the humanitarian community? And, and if so, why? Yeah, I've thought about this a lot because I've seen the good, bad and the ugly out there from Thailand to Kenya to Syria. And I do think that there's a few things that make Syria different. But what worries me is that it might not be different for long. And let me tell you why. One thing is that these crises are lasting much longer than they ever have before. The humanitarian world is being asked to do much more than it ever did before. So that's one thing that makes Syria different. The other thing is just the sheer amount of assistance that's going into Syria that I think was attractive to nefarious actors and the government as well. But I think also what you have in Syria, and this is really crucial, is that you have a government that really stayed intact for the most part. And that's not often the case with humanitarian crises. I interviewed one career UN official who said when she worked in Libya, she spoke to a minister of health that had no staff. So that was simply not the case in Syria. And that allowed the government to really surveil, monitor, and kind of completely control essentially the aid apparatus in a way that we may not have seen in other contexts. And they did it in a very savvy way. And you said that, that in many ways, the government had already been engaging with the international community on assistance. And that sort of almost gave them a head start right. when they had a crisis to steer the crisis to serve their interests. Right. So I was actually in Syria working with Iraqi refugees before the protests started in 2010. And I had seen sort of individual bad apples within aid agencies, but certainly during that period of time, during Syria has accepted tens of thousands of Palestinian refugees, Iraqi refugees. And since Bashar al-Assad has come to power, there's been an influx of UN agencies, international NGOs. So prior to the protests starting, they already kind of knew how to work the system. And they've gotten tens of billions of dollars of aid assistance coming in, and then the government's managed to, to get its hands on, on a lot of it. How yeah. does that work? Well, I think it works through, through several different ways. And the way that I'll sort of divide this out is that, you know, through diversion, which we see in, I think, unfortunately, a lot of humanitarian crises around the world, and that can be the military diverting food baskets for themselves or medical supplies. We've seen these in wars and conflicts all over the world. I've also mentioned and noted the exchange rate, which is also an issue throughout the world. But this is a way for the Syrian government to essentially skim off the top uh, between 30 to 75 percent between 2020 and 2021, any aid money that's spent in the country. But then you have this manipulation where you are able to hire those that you want within aid agencies, give visas to those that you want, and then co-opt, threaten, or kill those that you know don't go along with what you want. And so we're in this situation where the government and its allies can essentially dictate who gets certain contracts. And as I point out in the report, oftentimes these contracts are doled out to people with direct ties or directly implicated in human rights violations and war crimes. Now, your report is divided into to three very different areas. How do those areas differ from each other and how does this diversion manipulation control differ from, from area to area? Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, I, I divided them up into different geographic areas of control. So the Syrian Democratic Forces controlled area in the Northeast, 
the opposition-controlled Northwest and then government-controlled areas. The reason I did that is because I think that the challenges are quite different in each area of control. And that was borne out through the research as well. While I did see interference in the Northeast and the Northwest, it wasn't at the same level of a sort of ubiquitousness or control that the government has in government-controlled areas. But I saw other challenges to the aid sector, the constant uncertainty, for example, in the Northwest as to whether or not the UN cross-border mandate will be renewed every year. And the cross-border mandate, just for people who aren't familiar, if you could just explain that. So in 2014, the UN Security Council agreed to allow the UN to deliver implement aid cross-border without the government's approval in four different border crossings around the country. Today- uh, Into areas the government didn't into control. areas that the government did not control at the time, correct. But since about 2019, the Russians and the Chinese, both permanent members of the Security Council, have either closed border crossings or threatened to close the last border crossing, which is Bab el-Hawa in the Northwest, which serves about 4 million people. You talk several times in the report about sort of the bad habits that the international humanitarian community has fallen into in Syria because this was never intended to be the long-term operation it's turned into. It's been going on for more than a decade. What are some of those habits we've fallen into and how do we break those bad habits? I think it's really hard. This is not easy. I've been in the aid sector. Oftentimes when you're on the ground, you have all kinds of different priorities in front of you. You need to spend money. You need, you're putting out fires, sometimes literally and figuratively. And you have to deal with some really nasty actors at the same time to get aid in and to deliver what people need. And I think at the beginning of all of this, the government actually established their red lines pretty clearly right away. They said that the aid needed to be delivered, for example, through the Syrian Arab Red Crescent, now very much a government-affiliated organization. You know, the UN hadn't agreed to that before. The UN hadn't agreed to state military escorts for aid convoys before. But all of these compromises were sort of rapidly made because the humanitarian community thought they would get access, and they didn't. And we saw that during what I unfortunately call the besieged era, where we saw hundreds of thousands of people basically starved into submission by the government. And we still have those compromises. SARC and now Asma al-Assad's organization, the Syria Trust for Development, still basically monopolize the aid apparatus. SARC is the Syrian Arab Crescent. Exactly. So we, we're still in this very tangled web that the government has created. And I think that the government was especially very good at dividing and conquering the aid community. They tried to sideline OCHA, which is sort of the, the UN body that's supposed to coordinate all of these different activities, because they didn't want aid agencies to coordinate. They wanted all of them to be vying for attention and compromising with them with different line ministries. Is this the way the Syrian government works with, with Syrians in, in normal times as well? I think absolutely. I mean, this is a regime that is historically excellent at psychological operations and manipulation. So I think that this was somewhat to be expected, but I don't think any of us could have predicted just the scale and severity of the violence. And the humanitarian community is somewhat stuck in the middle. But one thing I will say is that it took the entire international community to shrug or to look away 
for this to happen. This wasn't any one aid worker, any one aid agency or donor governments. Everyone had to be at play and not to push for more reforms for this to happen. You have a long list of recommendations and, and, and I just want you to give us the, the most important ones with each category. One is there needs to be informed action. What do you mean by informed action and how does the international community pursue informed action? Well, there's been myriad evaluations and reports about the aid sector, and a lot of those recommendations have been shelved. And so one thing that I do recommend that donor governments specifically do, because they have the resources to do this, and they also have the sort of the power to do so, is to do a comprehensive evaluation and audit of the response to date. And the reason I say this is because often when I was speaking with donor government representatives and others, they say, well, at least the majority of aid is getting to people in need. I think we can actually question that at this point. And we need to have an evaluation to really understand the extent, the scale of the manipulation and diversion. And I think without that information, it's difficult to move forward or know where to go next. You talk about diplomacy. Where does diplomacy fit into this? So diplomacy and negotiations, I think I, the way I see it is that it needs to happen on the ground and it needs to happen at the highest levels. So on the ground, what I mean is that, you know, in the Northwest, we've seen groups like Hayat Tahrir Shem begin to sort of manipulate aid. Now, I argue that the aid community and donor governments actually have far more leverage over HTS to reduce that interference. But you need those constant negotiations. You need that collective leverage in order for that to happen. And then at the highest levels, there simply needs to be a much more comprehensive effort that somewhat incorporates aid into diplomacy surrounding Syria and looking at, at aid as really a strategic investment in the Syrian people. Talking about strategic investment, you talked about the need to promote resilience in Syria. How does the aid community do that? So there's been a lot of talk about early recovery in Syria, primarily in government-held areas because many find it controversial because it can actually allude to building state capacities, which obviously could be controversial for the humanitarian sector. But what I argue is that we should also be talking about resilience and early recovery in the Northeast and the Northwest. These are areas that the needs are rising dramatically. We see people dying in these freezing cold winters every year in the Northwest. People are still living in these flimsy tents and they're all entirely reliant on an unreliable UN cross-border mandate. So we need to start promoting resilience in these areas and promoting resilience and stability in these areas as well by securing ceasefires so that we can have this aid not just go completely to waste in another offensive, for example. And the last category you talk about is facilitation. What's that mean? There's been a lot of discussion about sanctions and counterterrorism measures and how they've affected the aid world. And my argument is that while counterterrorism measures and sanctions are vitally important to ensure that assistance or material support doesn't get to odious characters, the way that they are occurring right now is not really beneficial, let's say, for that goal. Because essentially, everyone is fearful that any kind of mention of difficulties with terrorist actors or with sanctioned actors will shut down programming altogether. And the other issue is, is just banking and de-risking. So aid organizations can't get the money they need into Syria. They can't get the resources into Syria. 
So I don't think that sanctions and counterterrorism measures alone should be the only proof of due diligence. I think due diligence also needs to happen when you look at the people that you're procuring with, the people that you're implementing with on an individual level to ensure that these kinds of characters of these actors are not gaining from the aid system. It's a really impressive report. It's 70 pages of fact-finding, as I said, more than 130 interviews. Who do you think on the organizational level is going to be happiest with your report? And and who do you think is going to be frustrated and why? That's a good question. I don't entirely have the answer to that, but I would say that I think those that have to be a public face for aid agencies might be frustrated that they have to address some of these issues in the open. But I would say that you know the majority of people I interviewed are UN officials and NGO workers and aid workers themselves, and they want this information to get out. They're trying to do their best in a really, really bad situation, but they can't do it alone. And frankly, there's been UN reviews and internal reports that have said just that. So I think that this is hopefully an opportunity for donor governments, the international community, the aid community to come together and create something better. I mean, I look at this report as kind of my valentine, if you will, to the aid world. I believe in aid and I want it to be preserved. I want it to be the sanctified thing that we think it all is. But we need to do better than this. Natasha, congratulations on the report and thank you for joining us on Babel. Thank you, John. Jay Kurtzer is director and senior fellow with the CSS Humanitarian Agenda Initiative that leverages the expertise of CSS programs to explore complex humanitarian challenges. Prior to joining CSIS, Jake spent seven years with the International Committee of the Red Cross, most recently working on Israel and the occupied territories. He's also conducted field missions in South Sudan and Myanmar and worked in Washington for Refugees International, a humanitarian advocacy organization. Sar Kayali is the Syria researcher in the Middle East and North Africa Division of Human Rights Watch. Earlier, she was the legal analyst at the Syrian Legal Development Program, where she provided research and capacity building support on human rights and humanitarian legal issues arising out of the Syrian conflict. She's also worked for the Open Society Foundations in Amman, Jordan, from which she joins us today. Jake and Sara, thanks for joining us on Babel. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You've both read Natasha's report. Why is this a different kind of report for most of the reports that you read on Syria every day? I think for me, Natasha's report really highlights a specific issue that we see in the Syrian conflict that although we sort of we speak about it, you rarely find the sort of comprehensive overview of it. And that's really the risks that are involved in aid operations across the whole of Syria, not just government held Syria, but northwest and northeast Syria. Human Rights Watch and others have investigated the tactics and legal and policy frameworks that the Syrian government has used to divert aid. But the added value of the CSIS report is that it provides you with this comprehensive overview and really emphasizes the role that donors have in ensuring that aid is not diverted. And Jake, you've worked in the field in a lot of places. Are the kinds of things that Natasha describes very unusual in your judgment? Is it just sort of a three times what you see in other places? Is it totally different? Well, I think the value of this particular report is that it both tackles 
a singular issue, but breaks it down in the way it manifests in three very different contexts in one operational environment, right? So you talk about the Syria humanitarian crisis, but what you're really looking at is at least three different operational frameworks in which humanitarian organizations, their donors and their partners have to operate in. And in each one of those operational environments, there are challenges with respect to the misappropriation, diversion, or manipulation of the aid enterprise. Natasha's report, I think, does a really important job of unpacking the unique elements at play in each of these three separate contexts. But what we know is that the dynamics that are at play in Syria exist throughout the world today, and they may they may be particularly acute in government-held areas or with respect to some of the armed groups, but it reflects a really unfortunate trend that humanitarian actors are navigating throughout the world. How do you think humanitarian actors will be able to use this kind of report, Jake? I think first and foremost, and picking up on Sarah's point earlier, is there are a lot of recommendations for donors in terms of being more assertive in the role that they can play to create the political and operational space for the humanitarian actors to act in accordance with their principles. So I think the first way that humanitarian organizations can use this report is to take it back to donors and say, we need you. Right. We need you at the U.N. We need you in your bilateral relationships with U.N. agencies. We need you in your discussions with partners or in your quiet negotiations that we may not know about to push more aggressively to allow us to do our work. And I think humanitarian organizations can also use this to reflect on their own activities. I've said regularly that humanitarian actors are frequently their own biggest critics. And I think that's motivated by the nature of the enterprise itself. But I think it is important, even if it's difficult reading, it is important that humanitarian organizations reflect every so often on the nature of the operation that they're working in and say, where can we do better, right? Where can we have pushed harder? Where can we have held the line a little bit longer to ensure that the maximum resources were going to the people who needed it most and didn't contribute in some way to some sort of unfortunate negative outcome? And certainly part of the challenge is compassion fatigue and people just decide Syria is too hard, too far gone. There's certainly a danger that people say, well, if the government is taking the money, then we should just stop giving any money to Syria. Sorry, you've dealt with people and alerted them to the abuses that are going on in Syria. How do you keep people committed to working on Syria? How do you ensure that people just don't turn away and say, this is too hard? I think the reality is, and this is what we really use to sort of remind donors, remind agencies, remind regular people, that the situation on the ground in Syria today is worse than it was five years ago. It's worse than it was six years ago. We're seeing unprecedented humanitarian needs. We're seeing increasing instability in the region, as exemplified by the prison crisis in northeast Syria. And all of this should send a very strong message to the international community and to the public that even though you want to sort of turn the page on Syria and forget that it's there, 
there are repercussions for ignoring what is happening in Syria on the ground today. And those repercussions require that you really identify solutions to the problems that we've been talking about, the abuses that we've been talking about for the last decade. Unfortunately, we haven't really seen that kind of sort of active solving of these issues. And we've seen that policymakers have sort of given up on trying to find solutions. But the risks now are higher than they've ever been before. Even what we've seen in the past three weeks since the start of the year, I think it sends a strong message that if you ignore Syria, it's going to come back with significant consequences. Jake, you've worked on humanitarian issues around the world. This issue of how do you sustain attention to hard problems And we certainly have seen it with the Palestinians, but there are other cases. How do you keep people focused on addressing needs? And how do you deal with the possibility, as as Sarah said, 10 years in, things are worse than they were five years ago? I think in the humanitarian analysis and advocacy universe, you're sometimes presented with false choices, right? Where you say, well, you know, We either do nothing or we do it and accept that this is the only way it can be done. And what's frustrating is that virtually every report ends up basically saying, do better, right? And unfortunately, these are very complicated environments. And I think humanitarian organizations, by nature of their mission, are always going to have the imperative to want to keep working. And it is extremely distressing I am sure every single NGO employee or UN agency employee is deeply distressed by the idea that after 10 years and billions of dollars spent and hours working, that the individual Syrian civilian, wherever they might be in the country, is genuinely no better off. But we can't wipe our hands and say, halas, we're done with it, right? What you have to do, I think, is to continue to iterate, to continue to assess, and continue to try to find the ways to do better. And, you know, there is compassion fatigue, but I think actually we're in a very strange time in the universe where by any metric, life should be getting better for everyone. And if you look around the globe, it's not that we've lost compassion for Syrians. It's that how do you keep your attention on that crisis while also paying attention to Afghanistan and Ethiopia and Yemen and Ukraine? And so reports like this, I think, are really essential in reminding us, yeah, there is still something really terrible happening here. And we all need to continue to pay attention to it and try to do what we can from whatever little space of the policy, advocacy, operational continuum to make this better and to get to a place where we're not doing the same thing year after year. And you talked about that imperative to do better, the sense you always can do better. Sorry, you've read a lot of reports. You've written some reports on Syria. What did you find surprising in Natasha's report? I mean, Syria is not new to you. What did you find especially surprising or revelatory that will help get to that point of what Jake was saying of how do you actually make something better? To me, what was surprising about Natasha's report was two things, actually. The first is sort of how these different operational frameworks or operational contexts, say, in, for example, Northwest Syria, 
Northeast Syria and to a certain extent government-held Syria actually play out in reality and how donor and also UN and other humanitarian agencies' biases really change based on the context. In one section, you look at the issue of counterterrorism laws and how they're impacting the ability to work, when in others, those same biases don't really appear. And I think we always take these different regions in silo and we never see them together. And when you do that, when you're talking, for example, to the US or the UK or the EU, or whoever the donor is, and you put all of these together, this kind of sort of illustration of bias is a real moment of, I think, self-reflection for a lot of us that, that have worked on Syria and who really forgot to look at it that way. That's, I think, something that, that's critical. The other thing that I actually found surprising is that there are UN staff and there are diplomats and there are humanitarian agency staff that are still willing to sort of talk about these issues, right? That are still willing to expose these issues and engage on them very critically. And I think this is something that's surprising in a hopeful way, right? It means that there is a will within these structures to really improve. There is a desire to make the necessary changes. And I think that really bodes well, given how concrete the recommendations in the report are. I was struck by a quotation included in the report from an official, I don't have it in front of me, but who said something to the effect of, you know, people who think the access challenges here are the same as anywhere else, they don't know, right? I've worked elsewhere and, and this, is, this is crazy. What struck me was the granularity of the access challenges that Natasha has, has laid out here. I would nitpick by saying that the challenges of access are present in so many different contexts. And what's important is that those who seek to unpack them or unwind them identify the local unique elements at play, right? The challenges in Yemen are different from the challenges in Syria, even if they both have the net effect of impeding the delivery of assistance to people or impeding the ability of civilian populations to access the needs. The report does a great job, and I don't think it's surprising, but it is shocking to read that level of detail on the access challenges. The other sort of key takeaway for me here is the report speaks in great detail to the humanitarian enterprise and the way it's been manipulated by the government, you know, the Assad regime and, and various other parties. But it really, to me, speaks to the total political and diplomatic failure that's the overarching circle in which this is happening. It should never have gotten to this point. It should never have gotten to the point where the manipulation was so readily available for bad actors. Right? We should never be at the point where the UN Security Council every six months is debating a single border crossing that's necessary for life-saving assistance. Diplomacy has failed, international politics has failed, and as a consequence, humanitarian actors are put into a position where they're compelled to make extremely difficult choices, and do no harm is not an option in Syria or really in any humanitarian operation. We're talking about environments where we're trying to minimize bad outcomes, but really the underlying takeaway for me is the international political system has failed the people of Syria. Jake and Sarah, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.